you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Listening audience, we're back yet again with another wonderful Guns and Metal Health podcast from Walk the Talk America. Hello, Michael Sedini. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited for today. Uh, how are you doing, man? I'm good. It's uh, 19 degrees here this morning in late October in northern Nevada, and uh, I'm sure it's a little warmer now, but it was 19 when I woke up, and that is, uh, that's really cold. The fountain in my backyard is uh, partially frozen. So uh, after 80 degrees last week, 19 <laughs> this morning is a little jarring. But uh, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're going to speak with our guest, Sherman Gillums, who has done some really cool work and continues to advocate on a lot of different fronts for veterans in the veteran community, but also for paralyzed veterans. Hello, Sherman. Good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning, Jess. I'm doing well. How about you? Awesome. Like I said, cold, but you know. Uh, you're, you're joining us because you have a particular interest in suicide prevention. Um, but also you, you work with people who have like chronic injuries related to paralysis and that sort of thing. And there's a, there's a different angle to chronic pain, chronic, uh, uh, physical obstruction that then leads to, you know, mental struggles and that sort of thing. And and we'll get into all that, but first I think it's probably just wise to let you introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and, uh, what it is that you do in the world. Sure. My name is Sherman Gillums. I am the chief advocacy officer, uh, as well as the chief strategy officer for a congressionally chartered veteran service organization called AMVETS. I was a former executive director of Paralyzed Veterans of America. Uh, So I spent the last almost 17 years uh, getting involved in the lives of veterans who had essentially hit their lowest point due to a catastrophic injury. Uh, A lot of that, as you said, involved mental illness, mental wellness. Uh, In fact, my first case was a Marine sergeant who shot himself in the stomach because he thought that his uh, comrades were trying to kill him in Iraq. And uh, he had a pre-existing mental illness when they reactivated him. Um, And that, of course, led to what happened. I don't think that his comrades were actually trying to kill him, but but it it speaks to the the way we manage mental illness in this country. We, We take it for granted in many ways that uh if somebody looks a certain way they're probably okay and if if they they have to they have to have the look before we assume they have problems um so we're missing a lot especially in these times when people are pretty anxious and desperate and and, and depressed uh even without the pandemic and social unrest we, we had these problems so um, i spent the last 17 years uh engaging the public engaging congress uh, but most importantly uh, working in the trenches with families. It's not just the individual, it's also the family that's impacted by an individual who has a mental illness. And um, and that work has evolved over the years, of course, because we've been at war for a long time. And I've seen the evolution of a society and what happens when um, the sort of contagion effect happens uh, and you start to see mental illness uh, propagate. 
uh, throughout throughout communities and things like that. So that's been the thrust of my work for the last uh, almost two decades. You touched on a lot of things there, and I really want to get into as many as we can with respect to you know your schedule and ours and whatnot. But um, one of the things I don't think we've covered quite well enough on this particular show is the the family system that gets affected by. Uh, whatever the individual is affected by, whether it's injury or just simple, like the ugliness of combat or deployment, uh, being away from home. Uh, we tend to focus so much on the veterans themselves that we, I think we gloss over the families, the children, especially, um, you know, the spouses, all that stuff. And as a, as a family systems therapist, that particularly resonates with me and, and my heart. Uh, my question to you, I guess, is, let me frame this a little bit different. I'm going to back up just a minute. So recently in the, in the, on the heels of the pandemic, I've been saying we in this society, particularly in the West, I guess we haven't really, um, we haven't really endured anything as a culture, as a group for several generations. I mean, we could go back maybe to Vietnam, but probably before that world war II that really like galvanized the, the country against something for any period of time, longer than a few months, nine 11 sort of did that. But then a couple months passed and we all went back to being fat, dumb, and happy and uh, kind of forgot to take care of our, our neighbors and, and love each other and so forth. So the pandemic's sort of done that to us. But we've had this ongoing conflict since 9-11, really, since you know the, the OEF, OIF engagements. And I don't think the country has really acknowledged that. I think the families of the people who have been fighting in perpetuity – have have really felt a lot of that but i guess my question to you is like what's the perspective when with regard to like these people who are struggling with this incessant wartime you know constant deployment constant recycling of of troops uh some people have actually had like full careers since then and retired and yet the the broader country i think if unless my perspective's way off is just kind of like shrugged at this constant conflict that like there's now outlasted every war that we've ever seen in America. Um, what, what's going on there? And like, how are you seeing people affected by that? There's kind of two schools of thought that I have about that. The first is while it seems like there are so many people who have been directly touched by the conflict, the reality is there haven't been that many people relative to the population of our, of our country that have gone and served uh, either in the military period, whether they deployed or not, or have deployed. It's not that many. It just seems like it's everywhere because we watch football and we'll see the support our troops and and we see the the campaigns and things like that. But the number is very small. It is indeed less than 1% of the country that that has served period in the military and much less that served during the last uh, almost 20 years now. Uh, And for that reason, you can find big swaths of this country that haven't been touched at all. They don't know somebody who died or was injured. Um, they don't, they don't even have a VA hospital in their, in their area. So, um, it's, it's, it's easy to assume that it says ubiquitous, uh, than it really is, but it's just not everywhere. And for that reason, it's easy to get distracted with things like in election season where, you know, we're divided over a lot of issues that have nothing to do with the military. Um, it's also the case that people forget what nine 11 did felt like. You know, we, we think about things like World War II, Beirut. Um, it's easy to forget that because when you're not touched by it directly, it's just a story. It's not an experience. Um, so that's that's a big part of it. Uh, the other part of it is, uh, you know, I use this term, a fish in water doesn't know it's wet. 
And if all you've known all this time is conflict, you're that fish in a bowl that doesn't understand um, what it's like to be on the outside watching this experience unfold. And because you have people who were either not born or were very small when this conflict happened, that's all they've known. I mean, my daughter was almost two when 9-11 happened. She's now at the Naval Academy. Her whole life has been defined by this period we're in. And, uh, and, and that became stark for me when I first saw her in her midshipman uniform and she had that National Defense Service ribbon on there. And it was a reminder that, yeah, we, we haven't cleared this yet. We, there, there's that indication there that we're going to be stuck with this for a long time. And if you understand history, uh, the Russians and, and their experience in, in Afghanistan and the French in Indochina, you know, which was uh, eventually Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, you know, this, it's tough. It's tough to extract oneself out of places like that because there's so much at stake. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, no good answers. You leave your damned, you stay your damned. So you do the most prudent thing, which is to stay, but there's a consequence to that. So I think we're just used to, ha- and, and it's also the case that I think we've, um, we've conditioned ourselves to normalize what it means to be in conflict. And so when we hear stories about KIA, it doesn't shock us anymore. It's kind of like, you know, just another news story, dog bites, man, that kind of thing. Um, we'll say the obligatory, you know, thank you for your service, thoughts and prayers. And then by that afternoon, we're, we're moving on. And there's a family who has been touched. They have to knock at the door and, and their lives have been uh, shifted greatly by uh, a death or, or even a catastrophic injury, which is, which is almost, I, I have to be careful when I say this, it's almost worse than a death because a death is final, but the injury, the injuries last. And, uh, and, and I didn't talk about my own injury. I suffered a, um, a uh, spinal cord injury, uh, not, not in combat, but while in service in the Marine Corps. And I saw the impact it had on my kids, my son who was six at the time, my daughter who was almost two. Um, they were touched by this because their dad could no longer stand up and walk and do the things that dads do. And that shaped their view of not just military life, but also what it meant to be someone who served and has to navigate the consequences alone without support. And they saw some of that. So, um, so it does touch the family. It does have an effect beyond the, the person that's injured or, or, or suffering. Um, and it doesn't go away. It's for life in most cases. Yeah. I want to, uh, get to that in a minute, but f- first I want to follow up with, uh, do, do you think that because we've just sort of settled into this idea of conflict and perpetuity that the broader public cares less maybe about some of the efforts that that we and you are trying to advance with regard to preserving our veterans health and restoring it and that kind of thing do do you think maybe people just sort of yawned and moved on i don't find that to be the case when i deal with individuals everywhere i go from the day uh, i got out of the marine corps i've always been met with support from complete strangers, people who, who just seem so different from me, uh, see me as a human being and they can identify with me whether they served or not and are always willing to help. I think it's just a very esoteric uh, topic or subject or field of interest that doesn't offer a lot of transparency. So when you hear the VA, you just hear about the VA as an abstraction. You don't understand that the, the 157 hospitals are set up a certain way. They're comprised by people um, that most people don't know, don't hear about. Um, it's just a, it's like anything else. If it's not part of your life, you're going to be 
tangentially interested as much as you can be, but civilians can't just walk up into a VA hospital and learn more about it. And and when our government talks about VA, VA issues, it's normally uh, a sloganized conversation around, you know, that's one thing both sides can agree on, Democrats and Republicans, but they can't agree on what's best and they can't agree on what that looks like, which is probably to be expected, but oftentimes those interests take a backseat to other things that are, are uh, offer more immediate benefit. And VA benefits just doesn't do that. And part of that is because we don't vote as a block. Veterans don't vote their interests. They vote their demographic. They vote their political party. But you don't see a unified veterans voice. And I think that might contribute to why you don't see more of it. Um, and, and then lastly, uh, most people haven't served. So their connection to it is going to be like you connect to a sports team. You know, you got your sports team. You don't play ball, but. You know, so you're going to wear their gear and all that stuff, but you don't you don't know details about their lives and things like that. So it, it may be human nature at the end of it. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things, uh, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a veteran, I've, I don't even have any veterans in my family, but I work a lot with veterans, the VA now, uh, just because of the nature of Walk the Talk America. Um, but what I found is, is that a lot of vets, especially the ones in the firearms industry, they gravitate towards the firearms industry. It just makes sense after they're usually done serving. Um, a lot of them, they dislike the, the VA. It, it, it's intense. <laughs> um, and I know that because I've been surrounded by them at shows where they're like, you go tell those guys this and this and this. Um, but one of the things that I think is really cool about what vets do is, um, and it, it kind of, I heard you tell a story about uh, the paralyzed veterans of America and how it was kind of like a grassroots boots on the ground started by, you know, the vets, paralyzed vets that didn't want, it's like no government interference. We don't want to an- answer to anybody. We want to, make the solutions and solve the solutions that really spoke to me because of that's, that's what walk the talk America is. It's firearms uh, industry professionals that came together and said, okay, like let's, let's figure out solutions. Um, but do you find that most vets have this kind of attitude? Like, Hey, let's, let's just lean on ourselves and create our own organizations and our own groups. They, nobody, un- they don't understand us. That's, that was the spirit within which a lot of these um, these celebrate veteran service organizations like PVA, DAV, VFW, they were formed out of that spirit. There were laws that needed to address the stigmas they faced in employment um, for the ones that were injured. Uh, research and medicine wasn't keeping up with their desire to live. Uh, accessibility in society, believe it or not, um, there were, there were uh, a lot of laws that were um, brought on by PVA's advocacy to make society more accessible to folks who needed to get into workplaces and get in stores and things like that. So there was a broader benefit to society in doing that work. But yeah, it was, it was this idea that they're not going to take care of us. We're going to have to do it ourselves. And of course, you know, veterans are built like that anyway. So it's not uh, a leap to see that happening, but how they do that, how they organized, uh, a lot of folks had to um, do the hard work. To, to form the, the advocacy uh, infrastructure, which has lasted for almost uh, eight decades now and has gotten a lot of laws passed to this day. I mean, they're, they're very instrumental in a lot of what's happening. Um, but yeah, we had to do it ourselves. And we, we felt like if we didn't do it, um, it was either that or die. And literally, because veterans were dying 
uh, who couldn't get the medicine and couldn't get and didn't see the research that that would help keep them alive with these injuries. Today, you have veterans that can live with all four limbs missing. And a lot of that is because they were forced, they being society was forced to invest. And again, it has a, a benefit to broader society. So it wasn't as if they were just doing it for themselves, but it had to begin somewhere. Um, and because at that time, there were a lot of veterans in Congress, uh, which, which, you know, if there's one thing I miss about those, those good old days and what will make America great again is to have more veterans in Congress so that in addition to the other social issues that get addressed, we'd have a lot more of these issues uh, that were uh, based on the firsthand experience of people who lead this country. So, uh, but, but there is this idea that if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. We see that with suicide. We see that with just about every issue that's been a, a chronic problem. Uh, veterans have decided that uh, well, we can't wait because they're not going to, they're not going to save us. So yeah. And, and, and I, and I operate individually uh, by, by that mindset as well, because I have been in, positions where I felt like if I don't speak up, uh, folks with no voice will never get hurt. So I, even, even in spaces where I, I feel empowered, I have to fight for that empowerment and, uh, and, and feel like if I don't, then I'll be, I'll be subject to the marginalization and, and all the other things that happen when folks are not heard. You know, you bring up an interesting point that I'm noticing a parallel with. I, I also do a, another podcast, uh, solely focused on mental health not not guns and mental health um called naga notes and recently i've been doing a series with people of color in the profession or outside the profession who um have a different perspective on what you know mental health care looks like and and what i noticed um in in a recurring theme especially with the black population is that there's a deep abiding suspicion of health care in general and, it, and what I'm noticing here is that with what you're saying, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but it sounds like there's the same type of suspicion among the veteran community about just people who are interested in, in helping out. It's like, well, we've got this longstanding history of being neglected and ignored and underfunded. Um, and I don't even know if underfunded is the right word because there's plenty of funding for defense. I don't know that there's tons of funding and, and even in the funding in the appropriate way for uh, care after the service. Um, but it's almost compelled the entire demographic to say, well, we've we've tried for years and years and years, and nobody's helped us, so we're going to help ourselves. And I'm wondering now, A, if that's still true, and B, if there's an acknowledgement that it's changing, or even if it is changing. You're right about the, you know, the black uh, demographic. Uh, in, in some cases, rightfully so, where there's been a suspicion You've got the Tuskegee experiments and, and you've got a lot of clinical trials that don't involve um, uh, black subjects so that we can explore whether medicine works the same across the board for everybody or whether there are differences that should be noted and things like that. That's one one angle. But in the veteran community, just think about it. Um, we just celebrated the recent anniversary of the Persian Gulf War. And as I talked about, um, what is this now, 30 years later, yeah, it's crazy. Um, a lot of folks don't know what those pills they were taking were for. A lot of the, the it wasn't documented. They don't know why did why were we given these pills? They don't know uh, about some of the exposures that that began to uh, that could at least be associated with clusters of symptoms. You know, we heard about Gulf War syndrome, but it's not a syndrome. To me, it was the actual impact that it had on the lives of people with this fatigue and and some of these unexplained things that were happening. And they've got nothing to show for it. They've got no records. They've got no um, no no documents that show 
that this group, this unit before deployed was given this medication. Add that on top of what's happened with Vietnam veterans for decades with Agent Orange and how long it took the government even to acknowledge that it could be associated with symptoms like cancer, like hypertension and circulatory uh, issues and all these other things that are now accepted. And as we're talking about that and getting the government and DOD to further acknowledge uh, the prevalence of these conditions among those exposed to Agent Orange, the rules are changing on how you have to prove those cases. And when you see burn pits and other more recent toxic exposures being handled differently and the evidence, the evidentiary burden being raised why wouldn't you be suspicious? You know, you, right. you'd be, why are they doing this to us? We, we went and fought and now we're coming back and being told that this stuff has nothing to do with all the, you know, the coating we put on the vehicles, you know, so that sand wouldn't stick to it and, and, and burning all kinds of crap in a, in a pit. Um, and not to mention the fact that the enemy probably did some things that were uh, documented, but not associated with individual exposure. So yeah, you, you, you'd have to be suspicious. And, and I find that when I go into rooms with folks from the Pentagon and the VA, um, there always seems to be something missing. You know, I don't quite know what's wrong, but I know that there's something not right about what we're being told and we have to press them on it. Um, so yeah, I think there is this, this um, almost a tradition of suspicion among veterans because we've been given reason to be in many cases. That's really instructive for a person like me who's, you know, ever evolving in his knowledge on what military culture is. And this is just something new, literally in this podcast that I discovered. I was like, oh man, there's like this, this deep abiding suspicion of like basically everybody else who's not in the fraternity. And um, as we move forward, as Walk the Talk America moves forward with our cultural competence courses and so forth, um, it's really good to know that uh, so that we can share that type of information with with our clinicians and whoever attends the courses, I guess the question at this point is like, how, do, what do we do about it? How do we pierce that veil and say, no, no, it's okay to come forward. It's okay. I'm not going to judge you. You know, here's a safe place, right? How, how do we get that message through consistency? I'm sure, but put credible veterans in spaces where they have a voice on those issues. You know, if you're going to have advisory committees and, um, when you have hearings, you know, invite a, a diverse swath of the veteran community, not just, you know, the people who are, uh, you know, the people you always see talking about these things and, and listen to families, listen, you know, on the suicide issue, on a lot of issues, listen to families. They'll tell you exactly what the problems are in many ways. And when you don't have them at the table, you know, the people you do have, they become this sort of self-licking ice cream cone where they're, they're, they're talking about things that preserve their existence and their influence. They don't get to the heart of things that are very tough to talk about and offer no easy answers. Well, veterans will give you that. But if you don't bring them to the table, I always believe that there's something wrong. Then you're not interested in getting to the truth. And the more we see that, the more we see that, the more we begin to believe that you really don't want to fix the problem. You just want to look good or you want to talk to hear yourself talk. So I think bringing more veterans, not, not the ones, even the ones like me who are polished and wear suits and all that stuff, but the ones that are actually suffering, the ones that will tell you, tell it like it is and well, have no interest other than to tell it like it is. Yeah, maybe and maybe that's just it. I mean, there's there's no interest in the system as a whole, capital T, capital S, the system, in changing itself by hearing <laughs> raw truth from people who are struggling because that means they'd have yeah. to take a good hard look at itself and maybe jobs are on the line and identities are called into question and egos have to be examined. And, you know, maybe there's just not an interest to – have difficult conversations about changing 
the mechanics that they've known for so long. I mean, it's that's sad to say, but it's unfortunately it's what I see every day in family systems work too. It's like, hey, do you want to step out of the chaos? Or like, yes, yes, we'd love to. It's like, but we're terrified of peace. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, we've got some work to do then. Mike, you look like you're. Well, I think that I, I'm always challenging um, leaders at the VA to stop telling us how hard you work. Tell us what you got done, right? Awareness is not a metric. I don't care how many people, how many impressions you got on social media. How many can you say there's been a delta between where they were when they came to you and where they are after they uh, were uh, a benefit of your intervention? And how are you measuring that? Uh, you know, you talked about having, you know, two, three, four million telemedicine appointments during the COVID crisis, but how many actually were better off for having that appointment versus those who uh, got the appointment but may not have been helped? And um, and they, they have this problem of, of measuring uh, numbers instead of measuring impact. And it's hard to measure impact. It's hard when you're held to that. A lot of social, a lot of nonprofits and people in the social sector suffer the same problem. Yeah where they want credit for what they did and not, or, or how hard they work instead of what they actually accomplished. And I think many in our government suffer that same uh, deficiency. You're, you're singing my tune because one of the things that I say at my company is um, let's get them in, get them treated, get them out. Don't keep them on the calendar in perpetuity and brag about how we're using evidence-based practices as a, as an advertisement to get people in. Let's, let's let it, our work stand for itself, you know, and word of mouth of who's been healed will, will travel throughout the community. Uh, evidence-based practice. You've, you said that at one point in one of your articles that I read too, you're frustrated with the evidence-based practice, um, as something to hide behind, uh, as opposed to like doing what actually works like emerging practice and stuff that maybe isn't quantifiable, like just, you know, individual surveys, again, the Delta, right? Delta represents change before and after. Uh, for those of you who don't understand the terminology, the uh, stuff like warrior retreats, like, is that evidence-based? Well, yeah, the evidence is the, the people who attended it are better off afterward, and you just survey them before and after. There's your evidence, right? But that's not popular speech among the clinical circles, uh, where it's like, well, if you're not doing CBT, then it doesn't count. <laughs> like, okay. All right. Yeah, because somehow humanity didn't make its way the last 40,000 years to present moment without CBT. Oh, wait, it did. Uh, yeah, so I, I get it, man. I t- well, veterans will tell you veterans will tell you what works if you listen. And I'm not saying that I have anything against evidence-based practice. I just don't think that's the end game. I think that's a means to an end. I think if evidence-based practices can get you to those warrior retreats, keep you alive long enough, Um, I said during uh, my last hearing, uh, veterans don't need a pill to help them forget about the hole that they're in. They need to get out of the hole, right? And if you can't get a veteran completely healed through pills and through CBT and all those things, try it. Give it a shot. But they'll tell you when it doesn't work. We had a lot of people who were treating veterans with post-traumatic stress while ignoring the signs and symptoms of TBI. And you can't do the same thing for every veteran with post-traumatic stress that may have a traumatic brain injury, even, even evidence-based practice bears that out, but, but they were not doing the TBI screenings that will force upon them the requirement to go the extra mile and do the extra things. It seems like they do what, what gets them that, that, that many instant victory and get them out and, and they should be okay. And if they killed themselves, it wasn't because we didn't write a prescription or we didn't do a therapy um, I'm interested in keeping them alive. I, you know, I'll give credit where credit is due, but I do see a problem where uh, evidence-based practice becomes more about the academician 
who's behind it and, and the, the studies and, and all the things and, and the budgets that pay for pharmaceuticals. They're huge. So I expect big pharma. I expect AFGE to resist a lot of this because the labor unions have a job to do, protect jobs. And they don't want a lot of these non-evidence-based, non-traditional practices to become part of the framework because they're not doing it. So I get that. But if you only listen to them, then I tend to highlight evidence-based practice as this holy grail that our, even our lawmakers pray before wrongfully because that's they're missing a lot of things that they need to be taken into account. Well, it's easy, right? You could just point to the outcomes and just say, see, it works. Uh, stop there. And it's like, well, no, yeah. we need to go more holistic than that. And, you know, we're, we're not we're treating human beings, not behavioral presentations as though there's some robotic yeah. thing to simply be quantified and measured and labeled. Uh, and then we celebrate because, uh, oh, from week one to week six, you had a stated reduction in your uh, depressive symptoms based on your uh, ingestion of Latuda or whatever. And it's like, oh, we su- su- surprise, we, we win. Well, yeah, you mo- modified brain chemistry, of course. What did you think was going to happen? But is the, is the quality of life better? And how do you measure that? So, yeah, it's, I, I get it. It's, it's awesome that you're, you're, um, you're beating that drum. I think one thing that we probably need to, to discuss is this idea of, like, what do we do when we intervene in a suicidal person who has firearms, right? This is a Guns and Mental Health podcast. You've been active as a voice in that realm. And recently, Congress decided not to move on with some legislation that was going to provide some lethal means training for the VA. And you were you were an outspoken critic of that. Um, share why that was important to you to, to speak out. So you're you're referring to an op-ed I'd written in response to a hearing that took place with the House Veterans Affairs Committee, where essentially firearms became, uh, I called it the scapegoat for the entire hearing, the entire three hours, because that's all they talked about. Now, let me say for the record, I understand 70, 75 percent, 80 percent, whatever the number is, the, the suicides by firearms is a problem and we need to address it. And the question is how? My position has always been, let's address lethal means while also talking about why those means became lethal in the first place, right? So we can talk about veterans' access to firearms at the moment of crisis, but if we ignore the fact that they want to die in the first place in large part because of some of the medications that, as you said earlier, changes their brain chemistry, it'll say, in fact, on the label, may cause suicidal thoughts, um, that's a problem, especially to the extent that these veterans are given these pills in vast numbers and without a lot of checks on how they're stored and how they're managed and how, you know, and who's watching them with these pills that a doctor is administering uh, indirectly through these prescriptions, um, as well as the other things that that lend to hardship. And, and some of those who want to die by suicide, as I have found, are often reacting to system failures where they were told you can rely on the system uh, and, and end up not being able to do that. You know, when Colonel Turner, the Marine Colonel who killed himself in Florida a few years ago, talked about why he died, he did shoot himself. And I wish he hadn't done that, but he told us why that was the case. And he said, because the system failed me, right? So we know why he did it. We know how he did it. And I think by focusing on firearms, in the 11th hour of an election season, to me, felt disingenuous because those, uh, it was a bipartisan split on the issue. 
that to me felt like you're looking for a reason. It became, and, and I use this term ironically, firearms became the poison pill. They knew that it was a showstopper. Why bring that up now? Why not bring it up, you know, six months ago or a year ago so we can have an honest discussion about it? You want to bring it up now when you want to stain one side of the political divide with uh, this legislation failing, falling short. Um, and, and there's no interest in talking about pharmaceuticals and, and the, the, the limits of evidence-based practice within the walls of VA because they're the ones at the table testifying. They invited no one who was on the other side of the issue to testify. Everybody that sat at the table was willing to make firearms the star of the show. And so the reaction wasn't about firearms and downplaying the importance of, um, of training that mitigates suicides as a result of firearms. It was the fact that we were watching a one-dimensional conversation take place on an issue that I've seen play out in three dimension. Uh, about a week before that, I had a Marine whose daughter died by suicide back in March. She couldn't bury her daughter. She had a cremator. Very depressing. Even for me as somebody who was intervening, uh, she called her provider to ask about the medication she received that said on the label may cause suicidal ideations and things like that. She called to find out why am I being given this when this is exactly what you're supposed to remedy. And because she wasn't satisfied with the answer and became upset, uh, the nurse on the other side of the line called the suicide crisis hotline that triggered a wellness check by the local police who went to her house. Um, she had just waken up. So she was in her bed clothes and wondering what's going on. Well, they ended up taking her in because she did not want to be taken in. And they thought under, under California law that they were obligated to do that because of the initial call itself. Right. And once they found out she had a firearm while she was in the hospital being evaluated and eventually cleared, by the way, she came home and found that they had gone through her house, found the firearm, taken the firearm, taken the ammo, which was stored separately, firearm, which was locked away. They'd broken a lock, got the firearm. And to this day, because of HIPAA, she can't even find out where it is and who has it. Um, so the law didn't work in her favor. And she told me the very thing they're worried about is the one thing that made me feel protected given all the chaos that's happening in these neighborhoods. And the one thing they should be worried about, they're willing to give me in vast amounts, which are these pills. And so I just come off that, that instance or example of where the policy hadn't contemplated a lot of things that will become factors, not to mention the fact that she probably won't go back to a provider who is interested in taking a firearm as a part of the treatment or therapy. And she shares the view of a lot of veterans who will not go seek treatment if they believe that their Second Amendment rights are going to be stripped. Uh, because it says a lot of things. It's not just the fact that they're taking away a weapon. That's a record. That's a record. It's like when you get pulled over. That's a record, whether you get arrested or not, of a police intervention that stays with you. And, and um, when you apply for a job, when you seek a security clearance, all those things matter. And so I think that if we if we get transfixed on one aspect of this that also happens to benefit, uh, you know, the, the, the unions and the pharmaceutical companies by focusing on this one aspect, as well as it being a nice political play. You know, if you want to make one side look bad, then you make them be the ones that kill legislation because they don't want to talk about guns. 
it was just all too convenient. And the timing was just interesting, given what was at stake and the fact that we had two years with this Congress to talk about veteran suicide, and they did nothing for the entire two years until now, the 11th hour of an election. So I just thought it was, there was way too much partisanship going on, uh, and I wanted to educate the public a little bit on why it's not always beneficial to just run with what seems like a popular position, given what we know actually happens when it plays out in three dimension. That's really disappointing to hear because I didn't listen to the hearing. I, um, I I just know of the piece of legislation that walked the talk American door, specifically Mike, and he can speak to this. And firearms was like one line of the five page bill. And so to hear that 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 got the spotlight is is disappointing, obviously, because it, it's, it does sound like it became a political red herring um, as opposed to addressing the, the issue, which is, hey, let's let's find reasonable ways to train train people to intervene appropriately uh, so that we can preserve Second Amendment rights. Uh, it turned out that that ended up being not the case. And I can understand now why why you would get so upset about such a thing, because it sounds like it was very inappropriately done. And we heard and we heard Congresswoman um, Underwood. She talked about it. I think she was the author of the legislation. Right. Yeah, yeah. What she said was, in fact, legitimate. I mean, a lot of what she said, it, it wasn't that we opposed the, the legislation itself, but they conditioned the entire package on accepting in whole the argument that if we just take guns away, that will stop the suicide problem. And I thought that the lack of balance in those conversations uh, on principle required me uh, to to intervene, at least with my voice on the other side of that. Now, had they included that in the Scott Hannon Act and went along with that, I probably would have been okay with it. But I just, because I had seen this Congress operate before uh, along partisan uh, fractures, it felt to me like it was a setup. It didn't feel like they genuinely wanted to push this new legislation with this provision added. It was just about forcing Republicans to um, to resist the entire bill based on this one provision. Um, and, and we saw that play out. You didn't see the, the, the hearing, but it, it turned out that uh, the chairman, uh, Mark Ticano, uh directly contradicted what uh, Chairman Moran said uh, about their uh, their compromise and how far they had gone in compromising because there was a discrepancy between what one believed was imminent compromise and the other one said was uh, a divide that persisted. I just thought there's something not right here. I'm missing something here. And what they're hoping is that the public latches onto this firearms thing, puts pressures up, pressure on Republicans to um, to go along with it. And by the way, the NRA and all those other organizations, they, they didn't have any role in this. They said nothing. Uh, I even talked to a representative about that who said, no, we don't, we don't want anything to do with, with it at this point, because then it'll become about us instead of about what needs to happen. So, um, so I just thought there was just too many unknowns that seemed to me to be about winning an election and not actually stopping suicides. So to be clear, you're, you're completely okay with voluntarily giving firearms up in the in a momentary crisis to a trusted friend neighbor etc you just don't want it to become politicized and then compulsory based on somebody else's uh assessment of the situation say a police officer or a crisis line uh dispatcher or something like that you're you're good with voluntarily um handing over in time of need 
In fact, I've advised veterans. I'd I, I let them know that when I call for this wellness check, I'm going to let them know you have a weapon, and I want you to give it, give it to an officer. Or get, and I'm going to tell the officer he's not a. I've had that conversation with police officers, with veterans themselves, and and um, so there are. It, it just makes sense to take the weapon away, either in those moments, and maybe even for an extended period, if this veteran needs care that that you know over a longer period. Uh, but when it becomes almost perfunctory that the first thing they go to is, well, you got a weapon, you must be, no, it's not always the case. And when you have this inconsistency with how these rules are applied, it becomes, uh, about who's making the decision at the time, not, not the actual intent of the provision, but who's doing it, the power they wield over you. Um, in some cases it'll be for noble purposes and in other cases, It'll be punitive. Um, I, I noticed that in the VA caregiver program, they now have a question that asks about firearms. For what purpose? I don't know. And if you don't cooperate with that that questionnaire or that assessment, they'll take you off the program, right? So when you have those types of things become factors, it's more about uh, how it's implemented, not the fact that you'll have this rule, but how is it implemented? How are you going to assure us that there are uh, appellate rights or due process for those people who are in that position, in the one case I talked about earlier, she's got no play, nothing. There's nothing she can do because it's a California law. It has nothing to do with the VA. So there's that to contend with. There are already laws where they can confiscate your firearm. To add another layer to that is to um, ensure, and, and this is the biggest thing, there are veterans that won't seek care. And if that's the case, we need to deal with why they won't seek care and make it a process where They'll trust the process. They'll be heard if they differ with the decision and they'll get resolution fairly quickly. And right now, I just don't think that there's been enough work devoted to ensuring that that's in place to balance out the need to take away the firearm in, uh, in cases where it's legitimate. Yeah, this is uh, this is really interesting for me uh, because I'm, I'm put in a situation being on the prevents task force, right? Being the firearms guy in the room. Um, but then to kind of listen to what you're saying, I, I wish you would have been to my right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, just because you could have shared these stories because what I feel from them is that they are making an attempt, especially with their interest in walk to talk America. Now, who knows, you know, what this is, right? Really what the intentions are, but I do see a lot of positive uh, because I do have a lot of interaction with vets, uh, Jake, I mean, obviously, Dr. Matt Miller, um, you know, we, we, we do talk to actual people that that served and understand it. Um, it this is a side note. This is, this is a, a quick little story I think you're going to find that was really cool. So when I got invited to the White House to be part of this team, we all had to do these little TED Talk style, you know, five minute. This is who I am. This is what we do. And I when I found out I was the only gun guy in the room. And when I say gun guy, meaning firearms industry professional. Okay. There was, there was other veterans in there, obviously that, that are super pro gun. Um, you know, that, that was hearing some of the people, people talk. I knew that they were, they were kind of anti-gun. You know, I, I could feel it in their energy and I was like, Oh boy, when I get up there and go, this is going to be really interesting. So I, I gave my talk and everyone was pretty stoic there was about 15 of us just sitting in a circle. And then there was maybe like 20 more people uh, around the table, just sitting and observing. Um, so I gave my talk and I had to end it with, we don't need to tell people what to do. We just need to be able to get people the help they need at a time of crisis without legislation and restriction. <laughs> like that, I made that really clear. Um, 
and then I sat down and it was kind of like, okay, this one guy got up and he was super decorated. You could tell just from what his outfit, <laughs> right? Um, and, he, and he says, you need to listen to this guy. He's like, you, you, you gave me a gun. You told me to name it. He's like, you made it part of my identity. You, you made me treat it like it was my baby. And he's like, and then years later, when you're done with me, you want to take it away because I'm upset or I'm in crisis. And, and that's all I need. I think that's all I needed, right? Is that guy to, to jump up and say, listen to this guy. He's trying to find solutions. Um, but that, when he said that it, you could feel him, like you could feel his energy, you know, and he said, and then you want to take it away from me. It, it was so powerful, but I love having this conversation and hearing the side of it. Cause it makes me think, okay, I got to start asking more questions. You know, I need to, I need, these are the, cause I don't know about these incidents. Like the one you're telling about the lady in California, cause that's just bullshit. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. So, th- so this is good for me to hear because I'm just, you know, like I said, it's hard when I'm representing a group of people that I've never, I've never been part of that clique. And I don't want to let the vets that I know down, you know, right. in the firearms industry, I don't want to let them down because they're telling me like, fuck those guys. Like, you, you know, you need to go tell them this, you need to go tell them that, but I just don't have the stories. And I don't, I don't know all the reasons why like the VA has failed them because what I see in the VA right now, and, and I hope this is pure and I hope this is true is that they're, they're really trying to make an attempt to, to, to actually bring, I mean, Jake, we're, we're kind of doing that, right. We're trying to bring the, the, the veterans that we know um, decorated. Some of them they made movies about, we're trying to bring them forward to say like, let's start uh, communicating. And I, you know, I'll just say this. I, I know Dr. Uh, Barbara Van Dalen. Um, I, I may have been at that meeting you're talking about. I did meet with them at the white house before the COVID hit. And we had robust discussions about this and um and so I know they're listening and I know that they're genuinely interested in finding ways to make it work. Um, but besides those stories, there are principal reasons uh, for the, for the views that I have. One of them is when veteran status becomes a basis for discrimination, right? And what do I mean by that? Well, if you are uh, assigned a fiduciary in the VA, that means that you've been deemed by a clinician to be unable to manage your financial affairs. And some want to make that an automatic trigger for an assessment of whether if you can't manage your money, then you can't handle a firearm, right? And, and that, that kind of makes sense on some level, except sometimes those fiduciary assessments aren't exactly correct. Sometimes not being able to manage your affairs is about the physical inability, which means that maybe if you're a quadriplegic, your hands don't, maybe you rely on a caregiver to do that. Or maybe you do have some issues where you've made some poor decisions. The problem is we have a lot of people with all their faculties who also find themselves in extreme debt, right? They're not punished for being unable to manage their affairs and therefore deemed unable to manage a firearm. Um, and, and by the way, if you're not a veteran and, you're, and, you're, uh, and you need a fiduciary, your Second Amendment rights aren't stripped from you, right? So it's only because you're a veteran and we're talking about managing money, not other aspects of making judgments, just managing money. And there could be myriad reasons why you have trouble with that. It's very subjective. It's up to the clinician and what he or she sees in the moment. But that one finding uh, is, is at least in, in proposal form right now, may be a reason to uh, take a firearm for you. And I had somebody make the comment about uh, 
him not wanting to see certain disabled people uh, with guns anyway. And I said, that's discrimination. That's discriminatory. I know a lot of veterans who are awesome shooters who, um, who are disabled. In fact, there was one featured in the, uh, the sniper movie at the end, the guy who was, uh, I think he was an amputee, multiple amputee who was shooting a weapon. I think using his teeth, they have these, these, uh, blow mechanisms and things like that. I said, what kind of, you know, what kind of talk is that you're punishing people because they got injured and wounded. Um, so I think that because we'll start to see that type of thing, where being a veteran actually becomes a reason to discriminate and similarly situated people who are not veterans, but have the same exact narrative won't be stripped of their rights. It's fundamentally discriminatory and and, and probably arguably unconstitutional given how, um, you know, how much is at stake when you're talking about taking away a fundamental right, like the second amendment right to bear arms. So, uh, for, for, for those reasons as well, we don't even have to look at actual cases. We can talk about the slippery slope that we often fear when we start down this road and the fact that there's no interest in um, making sure that we don't go too far. In fact, it seems like there are folks who can't wait to go even farther when this door is opened. And for that reason, I think that uh, we can't put that genie back in a bottle once they, they take it too far. Well, you know, and that's why folks won't seek care. They just won't do it. What's really frustrating for me to hear is that it puts people like me in a bind where um, <laughs> you say, all right, you're you're disabled. I'll put that in air quotes for the listening audience that you can't see because this is audio. But um, this disability, it, as far as it relates to military, can be hearing loss. It can be a shoulder injury from jumping out of airplanes. It can be a, a, a knee injury. I mean, it, you, you, and then you got gradations of disability of you know, 40% disabled, 70%. So at what point do we draw the line and say, well, okay, now we're going to pry into your private life and take your, your guns away. Um, but then once it happens on the federal level with veterans, what's to stop it from happening uh, elsewhere? And of course, people are afraid of treatment as it is now because of all the the judgment and the stigma and the discrimination that occurs and all the, the suspicion and, and, um, and fitness for duty. And this is not just with people who carry firearms for a living like military and cops. This is for uh, emergency room physicians and attorneys and, and airline pilots who, you know, it's like, well, you're suffering from depression. We can't let you fly the plane. Um, imagine now if that trickles out to other rights restrictions, um, how significant of an impact might that be upon people seeking physical care now too? You go in and you go, well, you know, you twisted your knee, you know, playing basketball. Uh, sorry, uh, ER doc, you're, you're, pro- you're clearly not capable of working in the in the room anymore because you know what we we've got some evidence that shows once you get injured at playing basketball you you tend to slip into depression because you can't quite get around as well and now that you have depression you probably can't handle firearms and you probably can't do your job and it's like oh my god now we're pushing people into suicide because they've lost their occupation their identity and it's like it happens in a matter of what a week um that, that these dominoes fall so i get the slippery slope argument that's that's really frightening and you know, Let some... me give you one more, one more uh, real aspect of this. It doesn't even take a doctor. It takes an allegation from somebody, maybe right. a disgruntled family member, a um, you know during a divorce proceeding, somebody who's seeking child support that wants to build a case against a veteran who uh, might be estranged. I see it happen all the time. A lot of folks use that fiduciary instrument as a weapon, you know, and and, and when. You get a judge involved, a state judge involved. You don't know what's going to happen. 
those judges can do whatever they want. And once they make that decision, it is hard to unlock. So I have seen cases where the question of whether someone should have a firearm was a matter in a custody case or was a matter in a divorce case where retaliation was a part of it. Um, and just the fact that you have to do an assessment for a fiduciary is the is the um, the danger because you don't know who that person is coming out is going to think how they feel that day and it's all based on one individual's idea of who you are as that whole complete adult who's lived a whole life but has to be assessed in that one moment right and because it's that sensitive and that fragile in, in terms of of whether it's an accurate rightful assessment. Uh, we, we can't be willy-nilly about the laws that govern what happens when somebody is deemed uh, in need of a fiduciary and the due process is uh, not as reliable as it needs to be. I mean, these VA medical uh, regional offices, they're not going to reverse their own decisions, but they're the ones who hear the appeals. So they make a decision. You can appeal it, but then they're hearing their own decision. They're reviewing their own decision. And if you take it to the Board of Veterans Appeals, you could be talking about years just to get a reversal or a remand, in which case you'd have it go back to the original regional office and they're going to have to make the decision over again. And in some cases they'll uphold their own decision. So because it's such a, a, um, a burden to prove or to disprove um, um, your inability to manage a firearm because of an inability to manage funds, I think that should be, a, this should be a much higher burden on the part of the federal government to impose that on a veteran yeah for for clinicians too i think it you know so to, so we don't go down the path of just complaining about you know the the boogeyman and not offering solutions you know for me and my clinicians my my interns my students i just say yeah confidentiality matters and i don't care if you're you know subpoenaed to court you you stand there and you say i'm i'm not i'm, I'm standing on ethic i'm not disclosing anything and and that's the way that we get people into care right if they're uh, worried about me disclosing something in a in a court custody case. All I got to do is point to the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy uh, ethical code seven dot seven. This seven dot eight that says you know I, I don't ever opine about custody, visitation, or residence. Full stop. It doesn't it doesn't matter at that point. You know, yeah, sorry, Your Honor, my ethical codes are embedded into law. Therefore, I would be breaking the law if you order me to. Uh, opine about this this custody issue your honor do you want to order me to break the law <laughs> like, like no that'll never happen and um i think most of us in my profession are too skittish about the court thing and about being subpoenaed that they'll just like they'll write whatever letter they want and it's like well good job with that now good luck defending your license as it gets taken from you because you broke ethic and broke law so i think the message we need to communicate as clinicians is that come in get your treatment whatever you say to us stays within the four walls um except for the the four cardinal exceptions of you know imminent harm to self or others reports of child abuse um ordered by a court which i just covered will never happen or you you authorize us to disclose other than that you you go work through your stuff in in our office you go continue plinking in the desert with your kids if it alleviates your PTSD or your anxiety, and you go get healed. We're not we're not interested in sharing your information with anybody else anywhere else unless you appoint us to do that. And in which case, we'll ask why that's necessary <laughs> to, to preserve your rights and, and your confidentiality. You know, and there are protections in the law that do make it um, 
mandatory that if you if you sense that there's a harm that could befall an individual or that person may be threatening you know the safety and welfare of other people you know when you talk to chaplains when you talk to other people who are in that role they have to act and i don't think that we can um underappreciate the fact that that most clinicians take that role seriously and i have seen it acted upon there were cases where veterans have made uh, ideations, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, terroristic threats and things like that. And if they had a gun, yeah, you had to do something about it. But the crime happened. The crime was the utterance. There's no crime when you need help. It's a different standard, you know, and it shouldn't be a crime to need help. But that's exactly how it's treated when you present for care. You mentioned I have a weapon, but I'm not really interested in shooting myself. I really want to get better because these pills are, are making me feel like crap. Um, and you know what, if I could see that in those instances, which may not be that many, but at least in those instances, there is a, an appropriate response, maybe I'll feel better about it. But because I feel like, um, you know, there's overkill, uh, then, then um, I, I don't trust the system to do the right thing in most cases, right? And so if, that, if that's the feeling I have, I have a responsibility to speak to that and, uh, and hopefully educate folks as to why I feel this way as informed by actual cases, not ideology or theory. It's actual cases that I deal with every day. Which is why we offer our courses, which is why we want to teach, you know, the firearms culture to clinicians so that we don't get skittish when we hear stories like, I take my kids out in the desert plinking because it alleviates my anxiety. Like, oh no, do I have to call CPS? It's like, no, actually, even, even the clinicians who don't understand gun culture, we are really, really hesitant to break confidentiality to call for emergency services, to you know, execute an involuntary psych hold, or um, or to, call, to to do a welfare check, like that's last, 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 last line of defense. Um, because the the edge that we stand on is protect the person's life or or self injury, or protect their confidentiality. And whichever way you side, you're standing on some ledge. Right. Uh, make sure that you articulate it well. And most of us in, in the profession will stand on the ledge of protecting confidentiality unless it's so extreme that we can't right. we can't talk them out of it. In which case, we're not calling the cops to take your guns. We're calling the ambulance to take you to the hospital. <laughs> like, right. We're going to get you well, not like reach into your life and start stealing your shit. Like, that's, not, that's not how it happens. And by, and, and by the way, another culture um, – it's rooted to you know the so-called gun culture uh, are police officers. Now they kill themselves in greater numbers than in the line of duty uh, when, when they're doing their job. What are you going to do? Take your guns too? You know you 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 can't solve anything by uh, you know eroding one's ability to be a free American in this country. That's not that's not the way you do that. You're not going to stop police officers from having weapons. It's part of their job. You're not going to stop service members from having weapons as part of their job. So you had better begin to look at what creates the circumstances that make them want to take that gun and use it as a, a lethal means. Uh, and I think the more we spend time on looking at the veteran population in this way and almost stigmatizing veterans, uh, as opposed to other people who might also be uh, subject to the same danger, but are not veterans and, and therefore won't be scrutinized in this way um, we ignore the bigger problem, which are the reasons people choose to die. And that's that's my whole goal is to make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that there are many ways to die. And while guns are the number one lethal means in this country, uh, it's not the only means. You know, women self-poison themselves uh, more often than not and, uh, and then other ways. And the second leading cause of death among men is self-poisoning. 
right? So are we going to totally ignore that part of it? Can we fix other parts of it too, or do we have to be one-dimensional in our focus? Yeah, it's interesting because I, 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 I laugh not at that situation, but when I was at the Prevent Summit and we were all sitting in the room, there was one clinician that was like begging the rest of the room not to forget about medication and all these other means. But basically everybody just... They were like, yeah, 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 we got you. They would then just shift their focus right back to, to firearms. It just became right. a natural thing. And then I think of the story you told about the lady in California. They didn't t- steal her car. They didn't take anything that could, you know, she could make a noose out of it and, and, you know, hang herself. They didn't take probably her medication or Drano out of the house. They took a firearm and the, right. <laughs> the ammunition. I mean, it's just, it, it, it does become ridiculous at that point. And this is, I think, has been, and this is the problem with the firearms industry in itself is that we have this giant red elephant in the room, you know, where we're losing more first responders and, and, and vets. Um, we're, we, ourselves, even the ones that aren't part of that, right? Just the 2A culture. Um, but we, we're, we're scared to talk about it because we don't want to lose our gun rights. Um, I mean, if I had a dollar for every person when I was at like the NRA show or shot show that came up to me and said, I, I would never tell a clinician I had a firearm. I wouldn't have to go out and fundraise for walk talk America. It'd just be self-funded. You know, like that's how, that's how bad it is. And if the, if the other side can't see that, then they need to start attending these shows with me. And stand next to me because people will come and they'll just tell you that. And that, you know, that's what really kind of made me wake up and say, okay, we got to do something. If they're not going to do it for us, we got to do it ourselves. We, we got to come up with, uh, you know, safe storage practices uh, through the gun shops, um, you know, all these programs. We got to do it ourselves. They're not going to help us. You know, they're, they're only going to restrict. So I'll get if I thought it was just about ignorance and not knowing, I'd probably have a more, uh, a charitable view of what you call the other side. The problem is when I confront them with this other side of the issue, uh, I won't name her. Uh, she's a prominent member of, of a senior staff on the house veterans affairs committee uh, on the majority. Um, she took offense to my response to a tweet of hers um, where she talked about the firearms issue. And I said, look, I don't want to, I don't want to refute what you're saying. I just want you to help me process this case study that I have. And I had a couple of others too, through, uh, you know, the lens of your perspective so that we come out with a more balanced understanding. Uh, she went offline, wrote me through a direct message about how her father was a veteran and, and all this stuff about her, how she under, you know, how she came to understand these issues, but didn't want to engage on the aspects of, of the problem that I wanted to make three dimensional to her. And it's that kind of reaction that, that, brings me to this view that if you're not going to hear me, that we're going to open it up and talk about it publicly so that other people can understand where I'm coming from. That's why I wrote the op-ed because she didn't want to engage. I think it, it, to me, it felt like they were trying to win an election using this as leverage, using this firearms issue and this legislation that had to pass as leverage so that uh, the other side would have to yield to their pressure. Um, And in the end, they ended up passing the bill without the provision. I don't know if I had anything to do with that or not. Uh, I, I know that it's it's effective sometimes to get ahead of these stories by writing op-eds, but they ended up passing it. Uh, but interestingly, they held on to it longer than all the other bills that had passed that day and were handed over to the Senate. They held on to that one bill 
Um, and it wasn't until they recur- they criticized the VA for not releasing its two-year suicide report. When I said, you're going to criticize them for not releasing a report when you didn't do anything for two years to pass a law. And you held on to the legislation even longer than the other bills that you sent over to the Senate. And you're going to criticize the agency for, for not presenting a report that looks backward when we're talking about things that you could be doing now to help us. Um, so shortly after that, it did go to the Senate. The president did sign it into law, uh, along with the 988 number, by the way. There's that 988 uh, hotline number that's going to be the designated uh, suicide crisis hotline for the country, not just veterans. Uh, but it's it's like you have to twist their arm to get them to do their job at times or call them out on the you know the political uh, gamesmanship that that unfolds seemingly when these more serious bills are on the table, right? You saw it with the, uh, the you know the pandemic money and all the bills that had to pass, they always throw in this pork that really has nothing to do with getting the job done uh, as pressure on, on on one side or the other. And both sides do it. I'm not picking on one side or the other, but but I get tired of that because now we're talking about a bill that won't necessarily be the magic. It won't be a panacea for veteran suicide, but there are provisions in the bill that will immediately empower local organizations, community organizations, uh, research money, all kinds of things, opening access to uh, bariatric treatment as, as an alternative to some of the things that are uh, only available in the VA right now. Um, there are a lot of things in there that will have an immediate effect once it's implemented. And we want to see that and get it going. I mean, we've already spent all this time in the pandemic without a single piece of legislation for, for veteran suicide passed. Now that it's passed, we, we need to get moving with it. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, we're all on the same side, hopefully. Uh, and how we get there is often a matter of experience being open, which I'm experienced and I'm pretty open, I think. But also having the tough discussions around these issues like the Second Amendment and how abridging that can have consequences that were unintended. I wanted to uh, circle back to your paralysis and ask you, are you, first question is, are you in pain? Do you have pain? I'm in constant pain and it's, you know, there are levels to it. So you have neurological pain, you have mechanical pain. Um, you have the kind of pain that tells you there's something wrong. Like if you got something internal, gallstones or, or uh, kidney stones, things like that. Um, but the neuropathic pain is a consequence of being active and having constant activity. So, you know, you learn to live with it like you do in the military. When I was a drill instructor, I don't think I ever had a day when my ankles, knees, shoulders weren't in pain. And when I became a McMap instructor, uh, close combat instructor, pain was a part of the job. Um, so I think that's just how we're born as veterans. Uh, and that has carried over into my life now. So yeah, it's an acceptable part of being a, a mortal human being who's still alive. I ask because um, I'm recently experiencing some some chronic back pain as a result of some accumulative effects, and um, I, I think as a dad who has kids and wants to you know play with your kids and that kind of thing, um, it, it's instructive for some of us who are dealing with this as we as we age and we have some degenerative stuff, maybe not you know paralyzed through a car accident, um, but it's still like. It's life inhibiting, right? And I'm curious how you manage that. And and I think you just answered it where you're like, you just, you live life and you deal with it. Like it's just part of life now. Um, and I wonder how you manage to work in that acceptance without trying to continually fight it or having your expectations misaligned with reality. Well, I'll tell you, um, and, and I'm just being honest here. Um, I would say the first decade, I didn't manage it well. I was a heavy drinker. Um, 
I didn't take a lot of pills, but I did a lot of uh, things like NyQuil and um, things that had a numbing aspect to their uh, to their effect. Um, Jack Daniels was a cure for everything. And I spent the first, and this is while I was going to school, I got my master's in, in business and, and did some other cool things, but I was managing pain uh, because what happened uh, in my case is every pill they gave me didn't work. Nothing worked, nothing uh, gabapentin, uh, nothing, nothing worked at all, except when I had a couple of shots. And then once you get used to that, that becomes the way you live. And so I think I was a functional alcoholic for a long time, uh, not to the detriment of, of any aspect of my life, but that was the problem because I could function through it and then come home and fall asleep after a few shots of whiskey that that became my, my norm. And it wasn't until uh, I began to see the impact it had on my health, uh, my, my liver, um, all those things that I made the decision to live by finding other ways to deal with it. And those other ways really had to do with a spiritual awakening that I had to undergo. You know, I think I grew closer to God than any, any time in my life because I didn't want there to be any earthly remedy that was going to kill me to be all I could rely on. And I tell you what, once I began to appreciate being alive, uh, the pain is a, is a reminder that you're, you're living. And even though it's, it's inhibiting at times, um, I think when my kids see me push through it, it builds character in them. It helps them. And, and I'm willing to admit it. And I'm willing to say, Hey, I'm hurting right now, but we're going to do this. Uh, it's, it's a teachable moment for them and it makes them better human beings by not letting things that uh, hardship, uh, stop them from doing what they need to do. So I think part of it is just being that example uh, and knowing that they're watching me, that helps me persevere. I did the same thing with Marines at Paris Island. When you're a DI and you got a sprained ankle, you wrap that thing up and you get out there and run and call cadence like nothing hurts you. So I think it's been built into who I am as a human being. And uh, at the end of the day, we're all going to go through hardships. So you might as well teach young people how to get through it. And I think that mentality helps more than anything uh but there are times when if, it, if i'm down i'm down and uh and, and i just have to you know work through it i appreciate that um it means a lot to me uh at this particular juncture of my life uh hearing what you just said so that i thank you for that did you did you uh did you slip into depression you know for me i did but i didn't know it and the way i found out um I attended a support group just spontaneously. I just saw the sign say, yeah, it's, it's the psychologist who, uh, who I was comfortable seeing. I had a good relationship with her. So let me send in on this thing. And she handed out a, a little questionnaire where it said, mark everything that applies to you. And I think out of maybe the 35 uh, indicators, I had maybe 20 of them that were honest. They weren't like, I wasn't like saying, okay, I'm depressed and this is going to prove. I said, you know, I feel good right now. And when I took all, and it wasn't just about the drinking. Um, I was sleeping all day and staying up all night. I was avoiding friends. You know, I was avoiding people who would tell me I drink too much. I was, uh, I was doing all, all the wrong things, but that was comfortable to me. And when I saw that, uh, I went back to her and I said, Hey doctor, I won't say her name. Um, I think I might be depressed, but you're going to have to tell me what this means. Cause I don't, I don't know what depression means. I mean, you know, we, we embrace the suck. That's what we do as Marines. We don't get depressed. You work through it. You do what you got to do. It doesn't matter how much it sucks. So, uh, but then I became a human being in that moment because she put me through a round of tests and, uh, and I'll tell you why I know I was depressed the most is because I did get a prescription for a drug 
that almost overnight made me feel euphoric. And I thought, this is scary. I got up that day when it took effect. I went outside. The sun seemed to shine brighter, right? I actually felt good. I felt like, hey, I want to get out and go shopping. I was ashamed to be around people in those days. But when I wanted to get out and I didn't feel like, you know, I didn't have body image issues and things like that, I said, you know what? This feels good. I don't want to rely on it. I don't want to have to keep taking these pills because they do have a side effect, but I feel good. And that was a month when I decided to go back to work for the first time ever. And because it had that effect on me, I said, there's got to be a natural way to do this. There's got to be. So I weaned myself off the medication. um, And from there it was, it took off, but I did have to have that initial eye opening, this epiphany about what depression is. It's not a sad, weak person. It's a chemical imbalance. And it happens to all of us when we're dealing with, you know, negative stimuli in our environment, especially when it affects your ability to, to move freely. So, um, so that, that lesson taught me firsthand what depression is and what it isn't, at least for me, uh, and, and helped me look at it a lot differently. Yeah. And your test. Yeah. I was going to say real quick that your testimony about the medication, I think, is exactly what I've been preaching for a long time, which is it should be a shoehorn. And I know younger audiences don't even know what a shoehorn is anymore. But like once your foot's in the shoe, you don't walk around the rest of the day with your shoehorn in. You you, you use the medication to to give you a, a lift and then eventually you adjust your thinking, your behaviors, your moods, your your, your self-awareness to you know eventually get off the chemical intrusion into your body and do it yourself right and and sustain that naturally like you just said so taking that medication it sounds like it gave you a glimpse of what's possible and how different it was from where you currently were and so congratulations that's awesome and thanks for uh, confirming my bias about what medication can do (laughs) yeah it's i i you know i'm an open book i i spent a lot of time living in new york city i i'm one of those cases where where a drug did change my life um, it, it, I had that euphoric feeling and it changed the way I treated people and it changed the way I behaved and it made me, you know, I, I'm not advocating kids go out and do drugs, <laughs> you know, like absolutely not. But, you know, I, I've seen the power and that's why I'm always quick to not, uh, stigmatize people that need a medication or feel great on a medication. I think it's great. What you do is like you assessed, you said, I want to get off of this. You made a plan. I think that's, that's, that's a beautiful way to do it. Um, I, I never want to talk bad about people that, that really have shown improvement on this medication, whether they think they need it or not. Um, but the, it's working. So you stick with it. If it, if do it works for you, right? Like I'm a big believer in leave people alone, let them do what they feel they need to do. Um, that's one of the reasons why we do these free and anonymous mental health screenings. Uh, Sherman, I'm not sure if you've seen them, but, but I I've, we've gotten them, uh, inside the boxes of firearms. They're free and anonymous. They're, they're powered by mental health America. Um, you can go through that process and check yourself out and not have to call anybody or ask anybody. And there's 13 different screenings. There's one for depression, PTSD. Um, I, I kind of wish at the time, like you had that access to you, but you figured it out. Like you, you got it. Like your story is amazing. It's, it's very inspirational. Not everybody has that, but that's what we try to do is kind of like put, plant that seed. Like, Hey, you don't have to be in crisis to go check, to take a screening. You know, you really don't. You can just go in there and check it out and just see where you fall under those different categories. But mm-hmm. I, I, I commend you for the way that you handled, I mean, just your honesty, <laughs> you know, it's, it's great to hear. I think you're going to be an inspiration for a lot of people to understand, like, it's okay. 
you know, to not realize you're depressed and it's okay to accept that you are depressed. Right. So that's awesome, man. Thank you. Big pregnant pause. That was it. Was it so <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. And I'll just say that I'm only honest because I know that it helps people um, not feel bad about themselves. You know, I had a lot of mentors who opened up to me about their own failings and their marriages and their alcoholism and things like that. Alcoholism in the Marine Corps, you know, they don't make for strange bedfellows. They make for completely compatible bedfellows because you often see uh, that those two things associated with uh, military life, not just Marine Corps, but in the military. And I'm just a, a byproduct of that. And it got me through a lot of things. I was a very healthy individual with, with the heavy drinking that we saw in many of the units. It was part of our culture. Um, every mess night, every bir- birthday ball, um, that was a part of it. It was the expectation, in fact. But when you get out, and, and part of the reason why transition is so tough is because you leave behind all the benefits of the culture, but you're still stuck with some of the things that are not so healthy, like the aggressiveness, like the intensity. You know, it's hard to be a drill instructor when you work in, you know, a business office and, and have that mentality. Um, you don't need that much intensity, but it's, you're not fake. That's who you are. But then you, you know, you're left with that and it doesn't work. And that's why a lot of people have trouble when they have to take the uniform off because we were made into these creatures of habit. Things like drinking and all that was a part of it. But that's all that remains when the uniform goes away. Um, so I don't, I don't feel ashamed because I know a lot of people who will hear this may right now be sitting in that same reality and hopefully, uh, my honesty about it will have them open up and, uh, and do the same thing. I mean, that's how we save lives by just identifying with people who are in crisis and letting them know, you know, you hear the term, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay when you're asking for help. It's not okay to be not okay if you're sitting there soaking in it. Right. So you have to ask for help. That's the other part of that phrase that often gets left off. And so I encourage people to acknowledge that they're not okay, but then use that as a reason to connect with somebody who understands what you're going through and, um, and give them an opportunity to help you see a different way um, out of the hole. You know, they've been in a hole before and and, and they, they know the way out of it and they're going to help you get out of it if you give them a chance. Mike uh, always likes to wrap up because it feels like we're wrapping up and we're coming up on time anyway, but he always likes to wrap up with his uh, question that he asks everybody. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you kind of answered some of it, but, but I just want to flat out just ask you, uh, how do you tend to your mental health? How do you tend to it? Like tomorrow in a week, in a month? I tend to it by being as extremely honest about it as I can so that I've got nowhere to hide. And people can hold me accountable because I spoke it into existence and expectation. That's the only way. If I can hide my drinking problem, I'll drink forever. But once I began to open up and be honest about it, it made me feel better. And it made, uh, it, made it more likely that I'd be surrounded by people who could, who could call me out on what was uh, a, 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 a vulnerability that I admitted to. And once that happened, I felt like I wasn't hiding anything anymore. And, and that's, that's the best way. Uh, the other, the other part of it is to, um, is to help people who are in crisis. That's, that's helped me number one, appreciate my own life, but number two, uh, develop a greater understanding of the human condition, why people do the things they do. And when I see it in myself, I'm more alerted to some of the things that I've seen in other people. So that is, that has also helped me. Uh, tend to some of the, some of the self care and force some of the self care 
uh, that I've needed this past year, especially. Being other centered is one of those prescriptions that we give to people who are struggling chiefly with depression, um, but, but also some other things, because if you can center yourself on others, it gives you less room to drown in your own miseries. Um, but also it motivates you to continue giving back, which then feeds your own endorphins Mm -hmm. and, you know, makes you feel good at the end of the day. So appreciate you saying that. Um, Sherman, this has been awesome. I'm really thankful for you to come on, um, you know, certainly to address the the op-ed that I think ruffled some feathers in our community. I I knew in reading it that it wasn't one-dimensional. I knew there was some nuance there. And just knowing the political realm the way that I think I do, I I had some suspicions confirmed, which is unfortunate, but um, thank you for, for doing that. Thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability. Um, it's been really cool, and I'm glad to have you speak to the things that you spoke to, not only to edify the audience, expand our own awareness and understanding, um, but also to ally, you know, as we move forward with this uh, suicide prevention stuff. And really, it's it's, yes, we want to keep people alive, right? But we want to figure out why they want to die in the first place and then not just merely save them from dying, but help them live. And I think that's that's the gist that I'm getting from from the overall tone of your message is like get people motivated to live, not merely avoid death, Uh, because existing in misery is not a life. And and I hear that from you and it's it's very it's coming through very clear and passion. So thank you for the work that you've done and that you continue to do. Thank you for the inspiration that you give. Uh, as everybody who crosses your path certainly must be inspired. Um, it's it's awesome. It's always nice to meet new people in the in the same realm who are, you know, paddling in the same direction. So um, on behalf of our Walk the Talk family, uh, and on behalf of Arms Corps, which is our chief sponsor these days, uh, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care. Thank you.